Good morning, Gospel Life. We've missed you guys. We've been out of action for the last several weeks, and so it's good to be back with our Gospel Life Church family. Well, what do you do when the grass always seems greener on the other side? Perhaps you are single but desperately want to be married. Or perhaps you are married and longing to start a family yet can't. Or you long for that next big break in your career, but can't keep getting passed up. Or you are working away your retirement years while your friends have all retired and are spending their days on the lake. Watching people receive these things while you can't can often be painful. Or to make things even worse, what if these things were given to people who seemingly don't deserve them? You remain single while your promiscuous friend gets married. You and your husband keep having miscarriage after miscarriage while your baby sister has three children out of wedlock. You are stuck grinding away at a job you hate, all the while watching your coworkers lie, cheat, and steal their way to the top. As we have seen in recent news, justice seems to continue to be forth perverted. Unlike the movies, it seems like the bad guys always win. To add insult to injury, social media seems to be an ever-present reminder of this reality. I have 24-7, 365 access in my pocket to the highlight reels of everyone around me. So how does scripture inform all of this? Does scripture provide us with any true hope amidst a distorted justice system? in which it seems like the good guys never win and the bad guys always do. Our text today is Psalm 73, and it seems to tackle this issue head on. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. As we do, let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we heard this morning, you are good. As we sang this morning, you are good. Help us to believe that that is true. Creation groans. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that you truly are good. So let us, like the psalmist this morning, proclaim that you are our portion. Help us to believe that and trust that and take heart of that. So as Matt prayed this morning, Lord, we can't see apart from your giving us sight. We can't feel rightly apart from your spirit alive in us. So would you use your word to reorient our hearts this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. So before we jump in, I want to give a brief context to our psalms. You'll notice in the heading this psalm begins book three. As has been previously shared, the book of Psalms is comprised of 150 psalms written by a variety of authors. These are subdivided into five books. Now there's debate about why they arranged the way they were and what this arrangement means. So rather than going into it, I simply want to look at the previous two books and how they began. Several weeks ago, Pete preached for us through Psalm 1. Here we saw the portrait of the blessed man. This man delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 42 begins book 2. 
We didn't go there, but many of us are probably familiar with the few verses that begin it. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. This psalm indicates longing for God and his presence. Finally, we get to our psalm today, Psalm 73. Now the prescript indicates that this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph wrote Psalm 50 as well as 73 through 83. So this is the first of a string of psalms written by him. Not much is known about him. The name Asaph appears a few times in Chronicles. If this is the same Asaph, he was a Levite and in charge of the music during the period of David's reign. The psalm written by him are debatably labeled wisdom psalms. Whether or not this is true, there is similar flavor to the wisdom literature of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Similarly, we will see God's truth wrestle through the lens of real life, the place where the rubber meets the road with difficult circumstances. For our time this morning, we will see problems addressed in verses 1 through 15, the shift in verses 16 and 17, and finally the resolution in verses 18 through 28. So let's begin with the problem in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1, Asaph affirms the goodness of God. He says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Scripture consistently confirms this. We saw the goodness of God towards Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in Genesis. Further, we saw that blessed are the pure in heart in our time with the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, we have seen in our time in the Psalms, God continues to be painted as worthy of our praise. But Asaph struggles to believe this practically. Look what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my step had nearly slipped. In other words, cognitively, he knew that God is good. But something was causing him to doubt that. What brings this doubt about? He explains the problem in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This seems to offset Asa's paradigm. A paradigm throughout scripture, especially Psalm 1, as Pete preached for us a few weeks back. A paradigm in which the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. Yet as Asaph takes a stock of his life and circumstances, this doesn't seem to be the case. In reality, it appears the wicked are prospering while the righteous are suffering. Look how he describes the wicked in verses 4 through 9. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. He begins by describing them as fat and sleek. This might sound like a contradiction to our modern ears. 
Remember, in this time period, fatness was a sign of wealth and prosperity. Clearly, the enemy isn't starving. Further, sleekness has to do with strength. He was not weak from malnourishment. Not only that, they seem to be avoiding the troubles others are facing, whether that be physical, material, the text does not tell us. Our minds are left to imagine the situation. But if you're anything like me, this situation is not hard to imagine. It's not hard to relate to either. Now, if this weren't bad enough, clearly the wicked are aware of this. Verse 6 says, Pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Not only have they prospered, not only have they avoided suffering, they're also well aware of it. They take pride in their ability to have obtained their luxuries, even at the cost of others. Once again, the text says, their eyes swell out through fatness. This isn't some sort of weird medical condition. Essentially, everything they see, they get. Because of this, their hearts overflow with follies. Because their sin doesn't appear to find them out, they are in no hurry to stop these things. Rather, they continue to take their sin to the next level. Not only are they successful and prideful, but their speech also validates their wicked prosperity. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. There have seemed to be no repercussions for their actions, so they bluntly say whatever they want, wherever they want, whatever is on their mind. Finally, they set their mouth against heaven. Their tongue struts through the earth. They have no problem cursing God. In their minds, why should they? Their wickedness hasn't seemed to hinder them. If anything, it has appeared as if it has only profited them. They see no reason to repent or turn from their wickedness. But how does this affect those around them? Look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Not only are they perpetually lost in their sin, but they are also dragging others down with them. These are God's people. They have heard and are aware of his commands. Yet the prosperity of the wicked brings even them to ask, can God really know? And essentially, does it matter? Asaph summarizes them in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. They don't seem to work hard, yet their bank accounts are ever growing. They prosper off the backs of the little guys who do all the work for them. They make millions while their workers struggles to make minimum wage. This problem is nothing new. Well, how does Asaph respond to all of this? Read verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Like Job, he declares his innocence. And like the writer of Ecclesiastes, this is all felt meaningless. His faith has not kept him from trouble. 
In fact, the opposite appears to be true. At this point, Asaph appears on the verge of despair. He seems to relent his own righteousness. It hasn't seemed to get him anywhere. Yet even in this, he says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Even though he is honestly wrestling with the issue of perverted justice, he still keeps his mouth shut from dragging others down with him. He still realizes that doing so would betray God and betray God's people. It would seem as though he has kept this between God and himself rather than spewing his doubt at others. Thus, as we have seen, the issue is that justice appears to go forth perversely. The wicked are prospering while the righteous are suffering. But then we see a shift beginning in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Thus far, the psalmist has been struck in his own little world, stuck in his own unfortunate circumstances. He has been suffering while the wicked appear to be prospering. Further, their pride seems to be dragging down and discouraging others around them. But then he enters the sanctuary. This is the place of God's presence. This is the place where God's word would have been declared and reminded to him. This is the place where sacrifice would have taken place. This is the place where communion and encouragement with other believers would have also taken place. We aren't told the specifics here, and perhaps that's intentional. We do, however, see the ramifications of all of this. Among other things, Asaph begins to see things from a God's eye point of view. So finally we get to the resolution in verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What does Asaph recognize here? In one sense, it's what Randy Alcorn recognizes in his book, Heaven. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For believers, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. But at a more profound level, he recognizes that God is not only good, but infinitely just. While in our limited scope, it seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. The reality is that ultimately God renders to each according to his works. The wicked prospers for a moment, but this moment is fleeting. Like a dream, they wake to find that God is still ultimately in control. He will punish their wickedness. So in his time in the sanctuary, a, we see Asaph's time in the sanctuary reminded him of God's justice. Yet before you accuse me of preaching of salvation by works or advertising karma, look at what Asaph says next. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Despite his innocence and clean hands, he still recognizes his own sin. He was still a brutish beast towards God. Perhaps not necessarily in his conduct, but at the very least in his thoughts. In all of this, he had forgotten the character of God. He is reminded that God is truly just. But further, as he himself had experienced, God is infinitely merciful. When he takes a look at his thoughts and attitudes towards God, he is reminded that he likewise is worthy of God's wrath, yet received his mercy instead. So B, Asaph's time in the sanctuary reminded him of God's mercy. What does this reminder of God's justice and mercy produce in him? Look at verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God himself is the prize. The prize is not health or wealth, prosperity, or better circumstances. Asaph recognizes that his flesh and his heart will fail. The other things he longs for will inevitably fail him. Ultimately, they will bring nothing but disappointment. Even if he achieves them, he will be at the constant state of trying to keep these and the constant devastation if these things are lost. God's gifts, good though they are, make terrible gods. God himself is the only treasure that ultimately matters. I am reminded of the lyrics of one of my favorite Christian rappers, Fernon, in the song, Birds in the Hand. He makes the beautiful connection between the prosperity gospel and the parable of the prodigal son. Listen here. I won't be happy till my man cave looks like Tukahamon's tomb. You think I'm living selfishly, and I can say apparently you haven't paid much attention to the gospel of prosperity. I interpret God's love through gifts received. It's my material things that give me the faith to believe. So Heavenly Father, don't think me an arrogant child, but if you don't mind, I'll take my inheritance now. In essence, when we strive for these things, we are saying to God, I don't really want you, I just want your gifts. Yet Asaph rightly recognizes that God is the only one who can truly and lastingly satisfy our souls. As Augustine famously quipped, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. So see, Asaph's time in the sanctuary had reminded him of God's worthiness. Thus Asaph is now rightly able to conclude in verses 27 and 28, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your works. The apparent problem in the, at the beginning of the psalm was that of envy or jealousy. But as we have come to see at its root, it is a problem of unbelief. Sarah Walton, writing for the, on this psalm for Desiring God, draws a similar conclusion. When we are suffering and feel resentment towards those who are not, or when we resent others for having something that we don't have, our feelings are rooted in some form of unbelief towards God. We are either believing that he is not good. If he was truly good, he would not deny me what I want. 
or that he is not in control. If he was truly sovereign, he could have prevented this or given me the thing that I think that I need. Or that he's not trustworthy. This can't be what's best for me. The battle begins at the level of our thoughts. And we take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. As we find in God's word what truth about him we aren't believing, we must confess our unbelief. As we acknowledge the root of our resentment and repent of unbelief, God will faithfully bring us back to the truth of who he is and what he has promised. And our joy will be restored once again. This is much in line with our mission here at Gospel Life Church, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus Christ. The issue at stake with envy or jealousy, as we have seen in this psalm, is one, underestimating God. Two, overestimating ourselves. And three, making an idol of God's gifts. The resolution came when Asaph entered the sanctuary. God's very presence. Here he is reminded, one, that God is not only good, but also just and merciful. Secondly, in light of that, he is able to see himself as he truly is, a sinner in need of grace. And three, that ultimately God is worth infinitely more than the gifts. So how do we apply this? First, don't neglect God's sanctuary. As I said at the beginning, we felt deprived not being here the last few weeks. Not only to hear God's word preached, but also to be in the fellowship of other believers and be reminded of this good news. Also like prayer as well. This is a side note, but prayer, like as we've read in this psalm, and as Jeremy talked about last week, he doesn't ignore his problems. He doesn't ignore his doubts. He prays them to God. And sometimes in raw and messy ways, but we need to be ever praying to God, communing with God, that he might reorient our hearts. Secondly, remember the goodness, justice, and mercy of God. This text came to me at a really low point earlier in my life. And even as I reread through it in preparation for this Sunday, it just hits me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> because I can associate myself with this suffering. I've seen those who have um, prospered even though they are wicked. And sometimes it feels hopeless following God. And yet... In this, I am reminded of the character of God, that he is good, that he is just, that he is merciful, and that he is worthy of our praise. So this thirdly reminds us of God's infinite worth. As Asaph will go on to say later in the Psalms, better is one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. So let us not only proclaim that, but let us believe that to be true. Asaph's problems were never resolved. We don't see any alleviation of his suffering or punishment of the wicked. Yet his perspective was reoriented in light of God's presence. Remember that we can't always see the big picture, but trust the one who can. He wills and works for our good pleasure. Through him, all things ultimately will work together for our good according to his purpose. This naturally leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
No place is this more clearly seen than at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we remember and celebrate every week at the table. God met us in our messiness, in our doubts, our envy as Emmanuel, God with us. If anyone was worthy of blessing, it was him. Yet he did not value equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself. At the cross, we see the pinnacle of his justice and mercy. Our sins deserved punishment, yet he, we have received grace instead. Further, our eyes have been opened to the view of him as ultimate treasure. This meal is a foretaste of that.